let me just start with pointing out that one of the, the greatest articles written in, in the 20th century was written by Ludwig von Mises, um, and it, it's entitled Economic Calculation in a Socialist Commonwealth. It was written in 1920 uh, in, in German. It was translated uh, in the 30s. Um, and this art, we, we do have this article available in, in a pamphlet form. I recommend that everyone read it. Especially, there's an epilogue by a modern Austrian economist, um, so that's also worth reading. Uh, but basically, Mises completely destroyed, in one fell swoop, the um, intellectual foundations of, of socialism. Um, but he also indicated what the, uh, the actual, the important function of the price system. Uh, economists up to that point hadn't underst understood um, that the, the, the price system or, or, or the structure of prices or market prices in general were necessary for economic calculation, that without prices there could be no economic calculation. So this was the primary function of, of the price system. It wasn't to give people incentives to do things, to, um, people who um, might, you know, to have higher prices for doing things that might not be as... Um, as attractive to do, as, as we'll talk about, okay? Um, so the there's an incentive function, but, but the most important function was that of, of economic calculation. So let me just start, um, introduce it very um, briefly with the difference between scientific and utopian socialism. Utopian socialism was the first type of social, socialism. Um, it was, uh, these are some of the individuals uh, who were important utopian socialists, um, they all had their own visions of the future and how the future was unfold, unfold, would unfold. And they all had specific ideas of precisely what their own socialist utopia would look like. And that's why they were called the utopian socialists. Um, there, there was Charles, Charles Fourier, Henri Saint-Simon, two Frenchmen, and uh, a Scottish um, uh, individual, Robert Owen. Um, Karl Marx was the one who named them the utopian socialists. Um, he, on the other hand, said, we are not utopians, and, and we'll see why, uh, himself and his um, uh, uh, person who, uh, his donor and patron, um, Friedrich Engels, and, and also co-author, um, they, they considered themselves to be scientific socialists. Okay. So let's just take a look at what the utopian socialists said. Uh, very briefly, and we'll, we'll focus on Charles Fourier. Just looking at him, you know he's up to no good, <laughs> right? I mean, he, he's anti-human. Um, so that's Charles Fourier. He had a very interesting um, model of, of what our future would look like, what the future uh, of, of, of the world, or in his case, France, would look like as a socialist nation. Um, everyone would live in garden cities where there were 15 to 1,600 people. I mean, he had very specific things. Um, but th these aren't what, what, what is most interesting. Um, what, what was most interesting is he actually had it, um, it laid out in his mind every, how everyone would, would live in what was called a phalanstere, which was based on a, a Greek military formation, okay? So he, he, this drawing here is, is, is the quarters that everyone would live in. There would be a common kitchen. People would eat together. 
but there were, would be hotel rooms in there. And this, this is what it looked like. He built a model of it, okay? Now, there were actually some people who followed him uh, in the U.S. in particular that tried to build this model uh, or tried to live according to Fourier's model. And that's what it looks like. So th- this, is, this is the, the utopia, the vision. This is the reality. It's actually not too far from my home in New Jersey, in Monmouth, New Jersey. Okay, um, it's ugly. It's dilapidated, and no one lives there now. Of course, the whole, the whole um, experiment failed. But more importantly, he had some very visionary ideas about what the world would look like. Um, he said that 19th century France was allegedly the fifth stage of advancement in human history. Um, it had passed through the stages of confusion, savagery, patriarchism, and barbarity. Now, after passing through two more stages, it would approach the upward slope of harmony. That's the final stage where it would be utter bliss for everyone, which would last for 8,000 years. He knew it would last for 8,000 years. Um, then ha- history would reverse itself and run backwards all the way to, to the first stage. Okay. Um, so what were some of the features of, uh, of, of this stage of utter bliss, um, which he called harmony. The six new moons would replace the one in existence. <laughs> a halo showering gentle dew would circle the North Pole. The seas would turn to Kool-Aid or, or some, <laughs> some kind of a juice that they had in, in France at the time. All violent or repulsive beasts would be replaced by their opposites. There would be anti-lions, which would offer themselves to be ridden by human beings, and there'd be roasted anti-chickens. This is, I mean, this is in his writings. That would fly fully roasted into people's mouths. Um, The human lifespan in this harmonic stage would stretch to 144 years, and five-sixths of the time, of course, they were all... They were were, were all obsessed with free love, would be devoted to the unrestrained pursuit of sexual love. Okay, five, six. No more, no less. Um, Now, how did he know this? Every single one of these utopian socialists had something that's called a gnosis, uh, which is a Greek word for a secret source of knowledge that only they were privy to. No one else could really know it. They had to take his word for it, Fourier or Saint-Simon and, and these other people. Now, this was embarrassing to the socialists because the classical economists, even though they weren't, we didn't have the Austrian economists yet at this point, the early 19th century, uh, just simply destroyed this whole construction. They said, basically, who's going to take out the garbage under socialism? There are still going to be dirty and difficult jobs to do. Who's going to go down in the mines and, 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 and dig out the coal at great risk to themselves, to their health, and to, um, risking a possible cave-in and so on. Who's going to get up early in the morning and, t- and take out the stinking garbage that, that, that people have generated? Um, if everyone you know, is, is um, compensated equally, how, how are you going to give people incentives to do all the things that are needed to be done? Um, the socialist and so so the, the classical economists focused on what we call the incentive problem. There wouldn't be the right incentives to produce the right goods that were needed under socialism. The socialists said, "Well, a new socialist man and woman would uh, eventuate. Okay, they would come into existence, and they would work for the incentives uh, uh, of awards 
for their, their you know, social mindedness, for uh, helping the community, and, and so on. Um, but both sides, both the classical economists who focus on supply and demand that you needed to get the right amounts of goods and, and, and to get them in the right places, e even though they were right about that, they thought that socialism was merely a problem of incentives. If the socialists could construct a system of incentives that was like the price system, then in fact the problem, socialism would be just as productive as capitalism. It was just a question of solving the problem of who's going to take out the garbage, okay, as it was put. Um, and the socialists claimed they could do that. They could do that with different kinds of awards and, and on, um, honors and um, parades and, and things like that that honored people that did these things. Maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong about that. But that wasn't the real problem. Well, anyway, Karl Marx, who was completely embarrassed by these rantings of Fourier and, and the other utopian socialists, um, decided in a brilliant ploy, a brilliant rhetorical ploy, to call them utopians, that these people do not know anything about the future, okay? Um, the future was going to come about inexorably. There were certain laws of history that were going to unfold and was go were going to take us into a, a socialism and then eventually communism. And if anyone tried to talk about what it would look like, they were unscientific. So everyone had to shut up about what it would look like, but trust Marx that there would be different stages that would occur, and the final stage would be that of, of communism, a stage of bliss. So he called them the inexorable laws of history, um, and, and it, it dictated that, so, that communism would replace socialism, just as socialism replaced capitalism, just as capitalism replaced feudalism, <clears throat> and feudalism replaced um, classical slavery, the slave states of, of, of Greece and Rome. So he said, these things have happened in the past. These stages will continue to unfold according to these laws of history and eventually will reach communism. We don't have to talk about communism because we know it, it's going to come about with, uh, according to, uh, inexorably, according to the laws of history. Okay? So this was brilliant because now the utopian socialists were, were, were just cast aside. Not, you know, he said, look, don't, don't listen to them. He said, we will have communism, everyone will be equal, uh, we don't know exactly what it will look like, and anyone who talks about it or tries to figure out what, what it will look like is unscientific. Um, so it was unscientific to speculate about the future. Um, therefore, if you look at Marx's writings, none of them were about communism or socialism. What was the name of his main work, his ma main three-volume work, of which he only wrote one, and his uh, patron who paid him, because Marx was kind of lazy, um, finished the other two works, you know, and uh, they were published po posthumously. But anyway, his great work was called Das Kapital, Capital. He wrote about capitalism and the contradictions in capitalism that would cause it to collapse and socialism to emerge out of the ruins of capitalism, Okay. So Marx himself didn't really talk about what socialism would look like. So that worked for a while. People became fervent Marxists. They didn't have to accept all this nonsense about anti-chickens and so on flying into their, into their mouths. Okay? They were now on the side of science. We look and we see that there were these stages of, um, of society, one that followed the next, uh, which seemed to be inexorable.
and that this would continue into the future. Now, Mises challenged the idea that the only thing that differentiated capitalism from socialism, at least up to that point, was that socialism had no way or has not, had not shown any way of, of solving the incentive problem. Okay? So Mises um, introduced what we call um, an impossibility thesis. Um, he said that, look, if we have a developed economy that has many complex and long processes of production to produce different things, even a pencil, if you've read the, the article, I Pencil, um, is the result, the product of a very complex and long and intricate uh, process of production. He said, where, where such an economy exists, um, you have to have prices, okay? You have to have pro uh, uh, economic calculation, which is based on real market prices, meaningful prices in which people who value something more than w what they have, the sum of money they're giving up, make exchanges with other people who have reverse valuations, okay? Without these real exchanges and real prices and markets, um, there is no possibility of economic calculation. So Mises' conclusion was that a socialist economy is impossible, and he used that word, because it cannot generate prices for capital goods and, and, and natural resources. Now, I wrote an article in 1990 called um, Mises as Social Rationalist, and in it I said Mises, when he used the word impossible, he meant it. Um, because the division of labor depends on, on exchange, and we'll talk a little bit about this in, later in the lecture. Um, and I, I sent it to Murray Rothbard, and so he wrote back to me, and he said, even I, who was steeped in Mises and a, a follower of Mises, he says, even me, my, 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 myself, he says, I never, he says, down deep, I didn't think Mises really meant that socialism was totally impossible. Um, he says, but now you've convinced me that it is impossible. And Mises' argument is definitive. Socialism is impossible. A socialist economy is impossible. That's not to say that you can't have someone taking over a group of people owning and um, commanding the, the various factories and land and so on, allocating them on their own. But you will not get economizing in Menger's sense, which we talked about yesterday. You, you will not be able to have them allocated to the most urgent wants of consumers. So what was Mises' argument? It was simplicity itself. He says, socialism abolishes private property and capital goods and natural resources. In fact, that is the definition of socialism. There was a book written in the 1860s by uh, an economist who was a quasi-socialist, and he says the one thing that all socialist schemes have had up to this point is that they wanted to get rid of private property and that private property, in the, not in consumers' goods necessarily, you could own your own clothing and, and you could own some household items and so on, but you, you, you weren't able to own the factories, the raw materials, the land. All of that would be collectively owned. It would be owned and controlled by one individual or one group of individuals. Let's just call them the central planners. So Mises says if you have that situation, if you abolish private property in what he called the means of production, um, then the problem is that the socialist state becomes the sole owner of these factors of production, and they can no longer be exchanged. If one person owns all these things, they can't exchange them. They can't generate money prices. Um, without exchange, therefore, there can be no prices. And under socialism, therefore, 
the state cannot calculate the cost of production of goods, okay, that it produces. It doesn't know what the cost of a car is. doesn't know what the cost of a bicycle is. It doesn't know if it should produce um, 20 condominiums or, or, th or three uh, detached houses, okay, because it, it can't compare the profitability. Um, and that is why socialist planners cannot know the most valuable uses of scarce resources. Socialism is chaos, okay, in, in, in planning what, what to produce, how to produce, where to produce things, and so on. Um, and therefore, a socialist economy is impossible. And I'll get into more detail about this. But let me just, this is a, a, a quote from Mises that's extremely important and that many people have missed. Even There are many Austrian economists that don't think the central problem of socialism is calculation. They think it's the fact that the planners can't have all the knowledge that they need to produce what people want, which isn't true. Mises assumed, as we'll see in a moment, that the planners had all the engineers, all the scientists at their disposal, they had people that would, would, would tell them all the scientific um, formula they needed to produce goods um, and, and that they would have, they would be privy to all the knowledge about resources. They would have lists of the resources, the, their productivities, and where they were located. Mises assumed all that and still said, which is, it is impossible to have all that knowledge, but even if you had it, Mises said, it would still be impossible for a socialist system to plan. Socialism would, 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 would still um, just collapse into chaos. So what Mises said is, the essential mark of socialism is that one will acts alone. Now, it can be a collective will. It is immaterial whose will it is. The main thing is that the employment of all factors of production is directed by one agency only. One will alone chooses, decides, directs, acts, gives orders. The distinctive mark of socialism is the oneness and indivisibility of the will directing all production activities within the whole social system. Now, why is he, why is he emphasizing that so much? <clears throat> because where one will acts and owns all the, all, all the uh, productive resources, there can be no prices. There can be no markets. Okay? So that, that's the key. It's not that, there's, that the, the minds that are controlling these things don't have enough knowledge. Okay, something even more, more important than that. There's an even bigger obstacle, that they can't generate prices. So what are the preconditions of economic calculation? They're threefold and they're very straightforward. There has to be private property, not just in consumers' goods, which some communists and socialists will allow, um, but there has to be private property in all factors of production, land, labor, raw materials, all sorts of, of capital goods and, and tools and instruments, factories, and so on. All of these things must be privately owned, and the people who own them must have the freedom to exchange them with other owners of goods. Okay. And in that case, we will have prices, prices of the factors of production, which will allow us then to have a common denominator in which we add up and um, summarize the costs of producing anything. And we must also have sound money, a money that's not controlled by politicians. Because the extent, to the extent that politicians control money and use it for political purposes, use the money supply, alter it for political purposes, um, you get distortions in prices, okay? 
Um, an increase in the money supply causes different prices to rise on, at, at, at different speeds and, and to different levels, okay? It isn't a smooth increase in prices, which distorts the price relationships between different goods, and therefore it misleads entrepreneurs. So socialism cannot exist, cannot allocate resources rationally, because it abolishes all three of these uh, preconditions and therefore nullifies economic calculation. Okay, so that, that's Mises' argument. Now let's, let me, let me, let me give you an example of, of what, what he's talking about here. The socialist planners, as well as, as entrepreneurs in, in a market society, can consult engineers and scientists and so on and come up with what we call a production function, which is simply a recipe, recipe about for how to produce any given good. So that, let's say there's a production function for this <clears throat> BMW. Socialist planners know it, okay? Um, certain amount of tons of steel, certain hours of machine time, certain hours of unskilled labor, hours of engineering labor have to be combined together in a, in a factory of a certain space. There has to be a certain amount of like kilowatts of electricity, and has to be gallons of paint, um, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> okay, what's the, what's the cost of producing that car? Well, we know the different resources, which are measured in different physical units, but we can't add up and, and find a, a single cost. You need a market for that. So how can we calculate the cost of producing this car under, under socialism? We can't because there are no prices, because the state owns all of those materials. It owns all the steel, all the paint, all the factory space. But in a market economy, right now, and at every moment and every second that, that succeeds this, this moment that I'm speaking right now, there are prices for every single type of, of factor of production, no matter where they're located, so that at any time, any one of you, if you had some idea about some, to produce something, you would know what the costs of production are, okay? Or you could make a good estimate of what they would be by the time you got around to, to purchasing these various items, okay? You would also know what the, the, the or, or you would have to, because, because of uncertainty of the future, you would have to estimate against these costs what the price of the product would be. So in this case, uh, of this car, um, we can assume that the cost of the car is $50,000, okay? Th th that is the sum of the money prices of all of those um, elements that enter into the uh, production function, okay, that you need to produce the car. Um, if the price is, is, is going to be $60,000, then that tells us that if it costs you $50,000 to produce that, consumers value those goods in alternative uses at about $50,000. So that if you use those um, various capital goods and, and, and hours of labor and so on and combine them into a, a, this car um, and consumers are willing to pay $60,000, you have taken those, those factors of production and allocated them from a lower valued use to a higher valued use. You've benefited society. You've taken things that, that, that will satisfy lower-ranked wants and move them to areas where people value them more highly, okay? On the other hand, if you 
um, produced this automobile and then sold it ultimately for 45000 while you spent 50000 on the uh, inputs, um, that would say that you wasted resources. Now, do entrepreneurs always, are they always successful? No, they're not always successful, okay? But they have two things. One, they have a feedback mechanism that tells them whether they're successful or not, whether they're producing the right things or not. If they earn profits, they have... They have economized resources. They have used them for higher valued uses than they were previously being used for or would have been used for if they didn't intervene and buy them and then produce a car with them, okay? But more than that, uncertainty pervades both socialist and capitalist economies, okay? Even under uncertainty, it's the uncertainty that causes the entrepreneurs to make any errors that they, they may make. But they, 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 they do know... What they, what they are doing. They're allocating the resources to what they believe to be higher value uses, and they, they may err in that uh, manner. But, but that's certainly true of the, of the socialist planner, too. There's also background uncertainty there. Um, but the socialist planner has no way of knowing what may be, even if it's uncertain in some sense, what may be a better use of the resources. He doesn't know whether to produce, let's say, um, 10,000 of those cars or um, 50 condominiums and, and then uh, 200,000 bicycles, okay? He has no idea, okay, because he doesn't know, he doesn't know how, what his costs are, what his profits and losses are. Okay, also calculation allows firms to determine what technology is least costly. I mean, um, we could use titanium, we could put titanium bumpers on cars and make them indestructible. Um, but the cost of, of doing that would be so high in terms of other things that we are giving up that it, it, it pays to use fiberglass bumpers, not even steel bumpers, because the extra weight in the steel bumper would cause more gasoline to be used, for example. So it's not worth, even though the steel bumper, maybe technologically, is better for the car, will we'll prevent that, better, be better at preventing damage to the car if it got into an accident. The fiberglass bumper, um, because of, uh, of, of a knowledge of prices and costs and so on, the fiberglass bumper is more economical. It's a more economical way of, of um, uh, protecting the car. Okay, so now let me tell you a little story. Um, I had a friend who I grew up with, who, a uh, female, who um, moved to Montana and married a cowboy. Um, <laughs> what, what was that laughter for? I mean, <laughs> but so she, 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 moved, she moved to Montana, mar married a real cowboy, like a Yellowstone kind of guy. Like you, you, I met him. You're kind of scared of him, just by, you know, you know I mean, he's menacing. You know. Anyway, um, so one day she called me up. And so she lives on this big ranch, and one day she called me up and she uh, said, "I got a new house." I said, "Oh, you moved off the ranch?" She said, "No, no, no." She said, "We um, we bought a new house and we had it shipped in." And I said, "What are you talking about?" Um, well, they bought a house. So they live in Montana, and they bought a house. In Nebraska, it was put together in a factory in Nebraska in modular pieces. So it was built in modular pieces. And then those pieces um, were then shipped, I think it was over 700 miles 
from, uh, from Omaha, Nebraska to Biddle, Montana, where she lives, okay? So, because in Montana, there's like 11 people. <laughs> so, labor is very, very scarce in Montana, and therefore, construction workers, you have to pay them a high, you know, a very high salary, okay? Um, so, it's actually, so, so entrepreneurs found that it was cheaper that you could outcompete on-site construction like we have in the south here or we have in the northeast where you have the workers and the machinery come to the site where the house is being built. It was actually cheaper to build it 700 miles away in a factory um, in a city where there was more labor, labor's cheaper, and then to ship it that 700 miles and put the pieces together. And, and that isn't her, that house that I just showed. Uh, it's not her, her home, but it, it's something like that, okay? So that home is a modular home that was put, put together, built in pieces and, and put together. Would a socialist planner ever figure that out? Is that intuitive? Is that something that people say, yeah, let's build this 700 miles away and then we'll, we'll ship it in? No, I mean, everyone, without, without a knowledge of prices, without entrepreneurs appraising what people will pay for this house, and then looking around and saying, you know what, I can build it actually cheaper uh, in, in another state, okay? That is just an example of, of how economic calculation um, leads to success in, in economizing resources, or allows us to even economize resources. All right, we'll skip that. Skip that. All right, so <clears throat> what happened in the, in, in the uh, Soviet Union? Um, how did they produce? They had something called gross output planning. Um, and what that did was, so, so the, there was a commissar that was in charge of each industry. Each industry was made up of a number of different firms that had different managers. The industry was given a certain a gross output target, a certain target in physical units, okay? And then the, uh, he the head of the industry would give each factory a, a, a certain target. Um, and of course, this is based on mutual lying because if it, it, you would tell the commissar, we, we can only produce, um, uh, you know, two, uh, let's say um, 2,000 tons of nails th this year, okay? Um, that's all we, we, we were equipped for. Um, and now, the commissar would know that the manager is lying because the manager wants to keep the target as low as possible so he can easily meet the target and get some bonus. He doesn't want to go too much above the target because the next year, of course, what will the commissar do? He'll raise the target, okay? So, so you're walking a fine line here. On the other hand, the commissar knows he's lying, so he, he makes the target higher. But hopefully you've lied enough that even if he makes it higher, you meet it so that you don't get sent to Siberia. So, so the, the whole thing, all right, so that, that was all um, part of, 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 of the system. So the, the planning agency was called, called Ghost Plan. And um, there's a lot, there, there were a lot of problems with this system. And let me just, let me just give you a few of them. For example, um, as I said, they set quantitative targets. They really couldn't set the, the, the quality. It was very difficult to, to, to convey what kind of quality of nails you wanted or women's clothing and so on. Um, so 
there was a, for, for a long time, there, there, there would be buildings that were built and they wouldn't have any roofs on them, roofs on them. Um, why wouldn't they have any roofs on them? Even though the buildings were completely built, people couldn't move in because th there was no covering. Because the nails were, 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 uh, that you need for roofing nails are much smaller than normal nails. And because you were giving the plan to the nail industry in terms of tons of nails, it was easier and cheaper and, and faster to make huge nails. So, so there's a famous um, cartoon where the manager is telling the commissar, well, comrade, I've met my, my target for the year. And he makes one big, so a lot of big nails were made. And so, so this led to, to, to tremendous um, misallocation of resources where, where these, you couldn't utilize these structures that had been built. Um, then there was a famine during the 1980s, um, which occurred be, uh, because there were tractors sitting, you know, they, they were perfectly fine tractors, they had been built, but they were sitting in fields rusting, and these fields had weed in them, okay? But there wasn't enough gasoline or fuel, and there wasn't enough workers to run the tractors to, to harvest the wheat so that the people could be fed. Why? Because the people were, were in other factories making more steel to make more tractors and, and to make more gasoline, uh, or, 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 or more steel to make more tractors, which would then rust in fields where there was unharvested wheat. So you had all these very weird uh, contradictions. Women continually complained about fashions because all women's clothing was extremely big um, because it was, e it was specified the target in terms of yards of clothing or apparel made, okay? So, so they'd make only large sizes, okay? Um, also, there was a uh, Khrushchev, who was uh, the um, uh, chairman of the, of the, of the um, party of the Communist Party in, in the 50s and into the early 60s, um, and, the, and the dictator uh, of the USSR. Um, in, a, in a famous talk to the Politburo uh, Bureau, which was the bureau of, of the top communists, um, he started suddenly berating the chandelier industry. And the reason why he did that was because the chandelier industry was given its target in terms of pounds of chandeliers that it built. And it turns out that in the dashas, which was the vacation homes of the party bigwigs, um, the chandeliers were so heavy they were falling from the ceiling, crushing the comrades. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and of course there's the joke about um, that uh, the... Um, Russian economists would tell Western economists when they met at international conferences, uh, and, and they would say that with, with a smile, we will bury you, because that's what Khrushchev said. Uh, socialism will become, or communism is so productive that we will bury you economically. Okay, that's, that's uh, people thought they meant a nuclear war, but that's what he meant. So the Russian economists would say, we will bury you, but we'll leave Hong Kong so we can see the prices, because, and, and, and that leads us to, to a, a criticism of Mises. People criticize Mises because the Soviet Union lasts for 75 years. How, how could that have been the case? How could it have lasted for 75 years if socialism was impossible? But Mises pointed out in that article in 1920 um, that that Socialism, true socialism, would be world socialism. 
a, a, a small economy, and, and the Soviet Union was a small economy um, back when it first started, compared to the rest of the West, of the world. Um, a small economy is like a post office. The post office is tremendously inefficient and can be easily driven out of business if, if you allow competition. But this post office can exist and, and operate because it uses price, prices that are generated in the capitalist economy around it. And that's what Mises said about the Soviet Union. He, he referred to the Soviet Union and he said, no, the Soviet Union is, is not a true socialist economy because it can use world capitalist prices. Now, these prices aren't exactly right because they don't apply accurately to all of these the, the, the goods that the Soviet Union is producing um, in, in, in a different area than, than where these goods are being produced elsewhere. Um, but they're crude enough, but the, the, they, they give you enough room for some rough calculation. Um, of course, though, the inefficiencies pile up, and over time, these, these prices are, are, are as, as the Soviet Union grew and became uh, used more complicated production processes, these prices became less and less useful. Okay? And it's a famous story of the Chinese Communist Party um, writing away for hundreds and hundreds of um, Sears catalogs back in the 50s and 60s so they could, they could use the prices. And there was also, as was pointed out much later, um, the Soviet Union had black markets in which consumers' goods were sold, bought and sold, jeans, Beatles records, and so on. And, uh, and also the managers of the different factories would trade machinery and wood and so on with one another. So there was a rough estimate of, of or there, there was a movement of goods to higher valued uses. Um, the only true period of, 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 of communism was war communism. From 1917 to 1921, all prices were completely abolished. Um, there was no money, and the planners tried to pl allocate the resources themselves. And what occurred during that period was that um, the, the, the goods just stopped being produced. And, 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 and workers would steal things and bring them home and, and, and try to work at home and make things. Um, after a while, during the cold winters, they would be, began to burn their furniture, then parts of their houses, and eventually people moved out of the cities and just roamed the countryside to find food. So that, socialism can exist on that, on that level, with small bands of people roaming the countryside, just looking for you know, very short production processes, picking berries, killing wild animals, and so on. Um, without prices, that's, that's what, what you're more or less left with. Okay. Okay, so let me just talk a minute about the social, because I only have a f five minutes. Um, the social appraisement process, okay, it's a fancy word that Mises uses. Um, it's the process by which the market economy, is, uh, which is driven by entrepreneurs, determines the money prices of all resources, okay? Those, res those prices are used um, in economic calculation, okay, in calculating the cost of production. And here's a little um, chart that, that shows what I mean here. So if you start with the entrepreneurs, the, pur the purple writing there in, in the middle, the purple print in the middle, um, the entrepreneurs look ahead. They look into the uncertain future, and they try to figure out what the price of consumer goods will be. And some of them are better than others at, at, at doing this, okay? So they appraise future prices based on present consumer prices. They know what consumer prices for bread and, 
and, and automobiles and so on are right now. And so they make, es- they make educated guesses about what they will be a year from now, two years from now, and so on. Or in the case of new products, they may not have much of an idea at all. Stephen Jobs and, 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 and the iPhone, okay? But still, as an entrepreneur, he's risking his own wealth, so he's making, he, he, he's, he's coming up with some kind of an idea of what, what the price of a, an iPhone would be, what people would, would be willing to pay for it. And then what he does, he, he and other entrepreneurs then look at the, the costs of, of the various factors of production. And what they do is that they, based on the prices they believe they will get for their products, they bid against one another. So almost like a huge auction house. They bid for the labor, the land, the factory space, the uh, energy, and so on. And, so, and, and in the process of this bidding, you have your costs arising. Okay? So based on their estimates of future prices, that is imputed back to the costs that arise. And those people who see the most valuable uses of those various factors of production are the ones that bid them away from the other entrepreneurs. Some of them will be correct and make profits, others will be wrong and, 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 and lose money. But the important thing is that there is what Mises called an intellectual division of labor. All of us participate in it as consumers, producers, laborers, resource, landowners, entrepreneurs. We are all bidding for different things. All of our value scales, that is our subjective values for the different things that we want or for the things that we expect to be useful in the future that we're going to produce, um, all of these people together are bidding for these things at every moment of time produce a price structure. That is, we, right now we have a structure of prices for everything that, can, that, can, everything that is bought and sold. Okay? So any entrepreneur can take an advantage of this and try to earn profits by allocating resources from, from the, the lower valued uses to higher valued uses. Now there were a few social, and I don't have much time here, but I'll just, there, there were a few socialist responses to Mises in the 1920s, they, and these were very naive. Um, one of them was that, well, you know what? We can we can calculate in kind, okay? We can use tons and uh, and um, uh, kilowatts and so on, and and uh, and add the, the the things together, like we were talking about with with the automobile. Um, and this was put forth by a fanatical Marxist, Otto Neuroth was his name, Neuroth. Um, so we could add up resources in natural units, um, tons of steel, kilowatts of electricity, gallons of paint, hours of labor. Of course, that's any, any elementary school person knows that you can't add oranges and apples. So some I mean, Mises disposed of that in his first article. The second is that, hey, we can calculate according to labor hours because all value comes from labor. Okay. Well, labor is not homogeneous. Okay. The labor of uh, you know, a software engineer is not the same as the labor of, of a ditch digger, which is not the same as the labor of a brain surgeon. Okay, so labor hours have different qualities and, and different productivities. Also, even in the same industry, um, let's say a basketball, LeBron James has an hour of his labor is di- on the basketball court. It's different from that of the, the 12th man on the bench who's a, you know, a, a gawky guy that can barely move around. Okay, so 
Um, and also, it leaves out of account, if you just take into account labor, it leaves out of account the fact that labor is more or less productive if you have more capital goods or land working with it. Okay? If you have less capital goods and land, it's less productive. And then finally, there was a, some brilliant um, person came up with the idea of, let's just tell the capitalists that tomorrow, on the first day of socialism, they'll do the same things. We'll have the mat. We'll, we'll get rid of the capitalists. Rather, we'll have the man. We'll tell the managers now where your bosses. Just do what you were doing yesterday. Okay. So we'll, uh, that's a static economy that assumes that nothing will ever change. That consumer wants will never change. That technology will never change. That uh, resources will not run out and new ones be found. Okay. So it would work in a world where we're all robots. Socialism, but it wouldn't work outside of that world. Um, I will stop here. We have the, 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 there, there are other more sophisticated responses. These were not very re sophisticated, but um, thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>